Happy Advent. Quick show of hands. Who has an Advent calendar? Lovely. Who has a chocolate Advent calendar? Excellent. Sharing is caring, friends. I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> this morning, we start a new Advent sermon series, leading us up to Christmas, fairly predictably, looking at key characters in that familiar Christmas story and how they can help us to prepare for Christmas together. Advent is a season where the church traditionally does three things. Remembering God's people looking forward to the Messiah, Jesus. Preparing ourselves for Christmas this year to focus on meeting God afresh. And looking forward to Jesus' second coming, where God finally calls time on this world as we know it and brings the final almighty enough already to the injustice and suffering in this world. As we start this mini-series, I have the pleasure of kicking us off with a look at John the Baptist. And I want to start by setting the scene for us with God himself setting the scene for his great Christmas plan. Like a baker arranging all the ingredients before they start cooking, or a craftsman clearing the bench and arranging all the tools to work, or getting all those Christmas plans in place for the great family meal, God sets the scene for his big move. John the Baptist appears as a forerunner to the incarnation, the moment when Jesus, God the Son, is born to live amongst us, and as a fulfillment of the prophecies from God's people, Israel, from ages past. There were a lot of people waiting a long time for this. In fact, it had been about 400 years since the last prophet, Malachi, had spoken out God's heart for Israel. And even if God sometimes spoke uncomfortable truths to his people, like, I see what you're doing there, and I want you to stop it. Actually, they'd have much rather heard from him than not really, mate. They'd have much rather heard from him than not, as would I. So scholars who were looking out for any faint hint of God connecting with his people had worked out that that 400-year time gap could be prophetically significant. Some saw an echo of the 400 years Israel spent in slavery in Egypt at the beginning of Israel's formation as a nation and then God using Moses to bring them out of captivity in the Exodus, into freedom, to worship him truly and unrestricted. It's been 400 years since we last heard from God. Could the 400-year silence of God now be an echo of that, they thought? The bookend of, God's, of Israel's glory days of, as a nation, and so time for a new era, a new move of God. And so, there was a sense of expectancy, of mystery, would God now show up? Would he send the Messiah? What will the Messiah be like? What will he actually do? I think that sense of mystery, of anticipation, is important. That's a part of Advent, of what we can uh, use Advent to help us to recapture, to relive, bring into our own experience. Echoing their yearning for God's Savior with our own yearning for him to come to us this Christmas, and also once and for all, to bring his kingdom in fullness. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Today, though, I want to start where Luke starts. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 5 onwards. If you have a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or a paper version, I honestly recommend it this morning because we're going to be banging through a load of scripture, so the more context you've got, the better. If you don't, there's a lovely screen there, but um, good luck keeping up. Give you a courtesy drink to get a Bible out. 
I'll talk good to you. Luke begins his account of the good news of what God has done after a short note to Theophilus, more on that another day, not straight away with the Messiah, but with the temple. Well, so far, so expected. With the family of Zechariah, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. Why don't we read through this, hopping over some verses so that we can focus on the Zechariah and Elizabeth thread through the story of chapter one of Luke. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, which means gift of God in the Hebrew, if you're interested, I think. Now I've said that, I really wish I'd looked that up. (laughs) You know when you say something and you're like, I definitely studied this once. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Grace of God. And you must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So we're not finished going through Luke chapter 1 yet, but that's quite a big chunk, so we're going to stop. And I just want to draw your attention to a few things to help paint the picture of how God is arranging his chess pieces for the introduction of Jesus onto the board. Verse 6. These were a faithful couple. For Luke to give them in his letter, which we now have as a gospel, the description that they were both righteous before God is high praise indeed. In verse 7, we see that they're old, with no child, which wasn't just personally upsetting for them, but in that culture, it was understood that being childless was a sign of God's displeasure, almost his rejection of you. These guys weren't just faithful and holy. They were continuing to be faithful and holy in really tough personal circumstances. That's hard. 
In verse 8, we see that Zechariah was randomly chosen for the high honor of the duty of serving in the temple. Psst, actually, I don't think it was random. I think God did that one on purpose. That duty was to take the incense, incense which smells lovely, and represents all the prayers of the people, to put them on the fiery altar so that the smoke, like the prayers, rose up to God and smelled lovely too. So Zechariah is in the middle of this solemn act, a serious ritual. He's gone into the holy place of the temple before the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separates the super holy bit from the already very holy bit, and goes up to the, that's the technical description, goes up to the fiery altar with his incense. Now there's kind of a candle stand there, there's a big imposing curtain in front of him, and this is a very serious, solemn thing to do. And up he goes, carrying symbolically the prayers of the people, ready to present them to the Lord, and an angel of the Lord appears. Zechariah was troubled. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love biblical understatement. <laughs> I love when they're like, oh, and he got a little nervous at this point. <laughs> You're kidding me. Verse 12 says, fear fell upon him. Fair. This is the holy place in the temple. God's holiness was in there. A man could drop dead just for getting too close to the purity and the power of God, and an angel appears mid-ritual. I'd have forgiven him for a slight panic. When the angel says to him in verse 13, your prayer has been heard, there's a lovely bit of two for one here. Because in that moment, Zechariah's job is to bring to the Lord the prayers of the people. Lord, please accept the prayers of your people Israel. Here they are, let them rise towards you. So he's carrying, he's a prayer carrier. That's his job at that moment. And yet, deep within him, his constant back of the mind yearning is, oh Lord, a child, please. Your prayer has been heard. Yeah, both of them. God is going to move, going to do something that will be a gift of love to all of his people. Verse 14, many will rejoice at his birth. And that something, Zechariah, is giving you a child. God's deals are even better than Black Friday. In verse 15, the description that the angel gives hints to us that John is to be a Nazirite, a specially dedicated individual to God. Examples of Nazirites in scripture are Samson, the prophet Samuel. Uh, They were granted special strength or gifting from the Holy Spirit due to them being specially dedicated to God. If you're interested in Nazirites and the Nazirite vow, look up Numbers chapter 6, but we haven't got time this morning. Verse 15 tells us that the angel's promise is better. Not only is he going to be dedicated to God, but this baby John will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So that's pretty good then. Verse 16 tells us that John's mission will be to turn many to the Lord their God, which is a really nifty definition of the word repent. Turn to the Lord your God. Just a quick tag out. Um, How are you feeling this morning? Don't answer, because you'll be the only one that'll be awkward. But if you feel like this morning you need an opportunity to turn back to God. Can I suggest you take it? Because if you just sort of sit back and watch this pass you by, actually you've missed out on an opportunity. If you feel close enough to God this morning that you can say, oh Lord, I'm really tight with you, I love it, thank you, I praise you, then amen and more Lord, please. But if you don't, if there's anything separating you from him, then turn to the Lord your God, I recommend it. It's a really good shout. Tag back in. Verse 17, the angel continues, John will go before him in the spirit and power of that great Hebrew prophet Elijah. Before who? John will go before who? 
Zechariah is a learned man. He's a priest. It's fair to assume that Zechariah will recognize the last words of the book of Malachi, the final Old Testament prophet. So here we have, where are we? Uh, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Could we have the Malachi verse, please? The last verses in how we've arranged our Old Testament say, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Flippinac, I can't speak. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the next verse, if we can. And he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Spot any parallels there? I reckon Zechariah did. I reckon Zechariah saw these verses, verse 5 and 6 in particular, in his mind as the angel was speaking to him, as Gabriel was speaking to him. Thank you very much. We'll knit back to Luke. So Malachi's processing this. Hang on, an angel is interrupted. Obviously, he's already a little bit sweaty from that. And he's thinking, what on earth do I do with this information? I'm going to have a son. How on earth do I carry that? I'm carrying the prayers of the people. The prayers have been heard. Right? I'm going to have a son who's going to go before, the, before someone, before the Lord, and turn many to the Lord their God. He'll go. That means that John is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That means the Messiah is coming, and soon. How much is that? for Zechariah to take in, in that moment. Poor Zechariah. Poor blessed Zechariah. So, I think not unreasonably, he asks for a sign to confirm this. To paraphrase verse 18, this is all too much, too good to be true. Am I dreaming? How will I know? My wife's very old. Look, Mr. Angel, I don't mean to insult your knowledge of biology, but verse 19, it turns out this angel is Gabriel. Quite a senior angel then who stands in the presence of God. You want a sign? You got one. And what we translate unable to speak is perhaps better translated unable to speak and hear, or deaf and dumb. Phew. You enjoying the introduction? We'll get to the passage I want to focus on in a bit. So, skipping ahead to verses 39 and 45. Gabriel, by this time, has also been off to Mary to deliver the bombshell of her miraculous virgin pregnancy by this point. And then we get this lovely interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, where the pregnant virgin goes to stay with Elizabeth and Zechariah, and the Holy Spirit, who's already in John, in Elizabeth's womb, goes whoop as soon as Mary comes in, and Mary is caught. Elizabeth catches her out with, you are carrying the Messiah. You're pregnant. I mean, it could have been passed on verbally. She could have heard this, but... The, the sense is that the Holy Spirit prompted the mother of John to go, you're pregnant. Not only are you pregnant, you're pregnant with the Messiah. How blessed am I that you've come in? Awkward if Mary's trying to keep that a secret. <laughs> uh, I was having a chat with Toby about this whole uh, transition thing a few months ago now when we were thinking, right, is this, I think this is go. And uh, one of the things Toby said was, okay, we'll need to make sure that we have everything lined up and we need to announce this to the church so that they know as soon as possible can't keep secrets in a church where the Holy Spirit speaks to people. As soon as you sort of something, you tell them, because otherwise God will. <laughs> anyway, verse 57. Again, we'll cut back to Luke's tracking of the Christmas story with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the baby John's birth. Zechariah has had a lot of quiet time. 
Struck deaf and dumb by his encounter with the angel Gabriel nine months before, he's had a lot of time to process the theology of what's going on. A lot of time to see what God's been doing, and a lot of time to appreciate God's loving plan that was unfolding before his eyes. Then they get to the official naming ceremony for John. And everyone, friends and family, try to name the child Zechariah after his father. That's how you do it. Elizabeth protests, and they make signs to the deaf, dumb Zechariah to get his opinion. Zechariah gets given an ancient version of an iPad to type into and writes, his name is John. Well, the family are amazed at that. And then Zechariah speaks. Suddenly, another miracle. He's completely healed, ears opened, tongue loosened, and neighbors terrified. God's hand is clearly on this situation. There's no denying it. Everyone can see it. Good job, words. You're doing brilliantly this morning. So Zechariah moves straight into an outburst of declaring the glory of God. And with the help of the Holy Spirit who filled him, he spoke this prophetic blessing over his nation and his child, starting at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets, his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Right, you ready? Let's get started. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The first words out of that priest's mouth, having had nine plus months of not being able to see or indeed hear, were praise. Sure, he'd had a lot of time to think about it. I don't think God had backed him into a corner where he'd been sort of awkward and uh, grumbly and had to praise, you know, sort of obligation praise. Lord, you're very nice. Thanks for setting me free. I think he'd had enough time to work on what on earth is God playing at? This Messiah business, the prophet going ahead, Elijah. I mean, he could probably still read scriptures. The first words out of Zechariah's mouth were, guys, you are not going to believe this. But not even, guys, you're not going to believe this. Lord, thank you. Why, praise? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah recognizes that in this event, the miraculous birth of his child and the calling and mission given to his life by the, the angel Gabriel, they mark the involvement of God in his people's situation in a hugely significant way. God has not just visited his people. He's not just stepped down to say, here I am, you can get to know me. That would be brilliant enough. But he's redeemed his people. 
God is moving to pull us out of the pits that we keep leaning back into time and again. No wonder Zechariah is delighted. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how you're doing in general or how you're doing with God, but let me just point out what God is like. He is the God who doesn't just leave you to get on with it or even to go through it, as if he's distant from your problems and pains. He is the God who visits, who meets us, even this morning, even here, and who wants to redeem you. Like a Christmas voucher you just can't say no to. He wants to take you home to him. Verse 69 reads, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. A horn is a symbol of strength or honor, just like when you look at a Helan coo, or indeed a Highland cow, or an antler on a particularly fine reindeer. An animal's horn, uh, Christmas wish, please, thank you. An animal's horn is its weapon and its pride. So that's the metaphor, so too for a nation. Thanks, this is lovely, but we can go back. <laughs> so, on a day when we're banging through scripture, let's just have a cow for a bit. Um, <laughs> that was your break, did you enjoy it? A nation, a horn for a nation is its strength, its glory. So a horn of salvation is a strong symbol of strength, of glory, of honor. And God has raised up a strength of salvation, a glorious figure for saving us within the family line or the house of Israel's glorious King David, as he promised he would. The jigsaw pieces are falling into place. And note in verse 70 that God is fulfilling a long-term promise from of old. There's such a faithfulness here, a promise-keeping in God, that in his right and perfect timing, he was providing for his people, more than providing. He was giving the ultimate gift. So if God is fulfilling his promises of old, raising up a horn of salvation for us, can I encourage you to meet him? To step up and say, yes, me too, count me in. We will offer a chance for you to be prayed for by a member of the church at the end of this service. That's a really good time to opt in to this offer and say, me too. Verse 71. So that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. There's little doubt that people who've spoken these words in the past have been yearning to be set free from controlling empires, from slave masters, from foreign forces occupying the land, and similar. But I'm convinced that as good as it is to be set free from any or all of those things, there is an even better way to be saved and set free. I'm convinced, I am persuaded in my life experience that the best possible thing that any of us can do in our lives is to get to know the one who made us, who lovingly handcrafted us, and to come into as full a relationship with him as we possibly can. If that is the chief end of man, as some put it, the highest purpose, the ultimate goal for life, and I think it is, then our enemies in achieving that goal aren't the occupying army, the slave trader, the politician, or the cruel capitalist businessman. 
The enemies of my intimately knowing God are the unseen forces that stop me from spending time with him, personally reaching out to him, putting him above everything else in my life. It is so, so true that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6.12 puts it. What is drawing your time away from the light? What is drawing your attention away from the true lover of your soul? Is it work? Is it the social media accounts on your phone? That was brilliantly timed, thank you. <laughs> you deserve an extra donut for later. Is it a game? Is it a person or a group who's taking up your thought life? Is it just laziness? I find that for us in our culture, it's far more likely to be a subtle temptation or a distraction than it is a person with a weapon or an army. I think the enemies that we need setting free from are so often the little snares that catch us as we walk past a bush, not an army coming at us with a sword. And it's far more dangerous for our relationship with God that one of these might take us captive and prevent us from meeting with him fully. One other thing is guilt. Maybe you've done things or failed to do things that haunt you. Maybe those memories, those pains, cause you to feel lower and lower, and it's almost as if they're whispered to you at your most vulnerable moments. I suspect they are. That stop you from knowing true freedom as a person, from knowing true release from burden. Well, what if God was more interested in freeing us from these things, from distractions and from haunting guilt than he was even from freeing us from an occupying army. I think I'd rather be free in myself, free to meet him undistracted and undragged down by the occupations of this world, free from guilt, free from shame, and the burdens that would stop me from being able to look him in his face and feel his love for me. I'd rather he set me free from these sorts of enemies, even if I then had to live in a land where there were oppressive leaders. I think God wants us to have freedom from both, but I want my freedom in here first, personally speaking. God's game plan seems to have been on an inner, deeper level. And speaking to you here this morning, if you've met God, if you've experienced the joy of feeling his presence, his love for you, if you felt that firsthand, I'd expect you to agree with his priorities here as well. And if you haven't met him like that, and you'd like to, or if you want to be set free from any of those things I was talking about, then, spoiler alert, God did in fact sort it out. And we would love to pray for you this morning, for him to meet you, bless you, even heal you. Verse 72. God's saving us is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and so that he remembers his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Without fear in holiness and righteousness before him? We've talked about what we've been saved from but what we've been saved to is a state where we can find our fulfillment, find the life that he made us for, living it out with him and for him, even serving him without fear. 
And so that when we stand and meet God, not just in heaven, but right here and today, we can worship him with our whole beings at peace. If holiness means set apart for God, unspoilt, unsullied by the world, then imagine if we, through him saving us, through him redeeming us, could also be unsullied by the world, as he restores us to so much more than factory settings. The good news is you don't have to imagine this. That's kind of the offer. This is what Christmas was for. Then Zechariah, having burst out that prophetic poem of delight, turns his attention to his wee boy. And as well as declaring God's goodness and God's plan for his people, he speaks to John about the part John will play in bringing that plan about. Was he overestimating an eight-day-old child's ability to hear? I don't know, but Luke wrote it down, so that's handy. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Have you heard the joke that the queen thinks the whole world smells of wet paint? Everywhere she goes outside the palace has just been frantically decorated in a hurry. So, to her, the whole world smells of a shiny coat of Dulux. It's like everywhere she goes, people have gone before her to sweep the area for security, to make the important arrangements, to make things look just right for the queen's royal visit. It was actually just like that in ancient times, too. Except... When the king was about to visit, they'd go around improving all the roads as well, which I was about to say was old-fashioned, but actually there's a few roads I know that could do with a royal visit. John, Zechariah's son, better known to us as John the Baptist, was given the task of going ahead of the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, to prepare the way for him. So, what did preparing the way look like in John's case? Verse 77 tells us, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's job was to tell them that salvation was coming, that their sins can be forgiven. We know that John's message was to tell people to repent, to turn to God, to have their sins forgiven as Jesus was coming after him. And he baptized people into a new life of forgiven sins in preparation to hear all that Jesus would offer them from the Father. All this was because of, verse 78, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's God's motivation for all this? What's God like? He's tender. He's full of mercy. He's full of life. He is like the first rays of light that hit you when the sun comes over the horizon for a new day, even when you're sat in a miserable, lonely, dark, damp, cold cave, when you're sat in darkness, when you feel like you're in the shadow of death. God's heart for you is shining bursts of light and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think some Christians believe that Jesus is a really good example for us to follow. And I don't disagree with him there, but he's so much more than that. Jesus is not just the model to follow so that our feet can follow him in the way of peace. He is the guide within. He is the present company on that walk. He is the one who lifts us over the ah, the cheesy footprints poem. You know the one. If you don't know the one, Google it. He is not just the example, but he's the presence, which feels like bursts of light 
in a place of death. And John the Baptist was the man given the job of setting the scene for Jesus. What holy pride, what deep God-given joy Zechariah must have felt looking at his eight-day-old boy and knowing, thanks to God's Holy Spirit prompting him, what this boy was entrusted to do. The people of Israel, God's people, had been longing for him to speak, to move amongst them for at least the previous 400 years. Zechariah, going about his usual business as a priest, with the special honor of performing the incense prayer ceremony, is suddenly interrupted by huge news for the nation, for his own household. God is good to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Their wait for a son, their wait for a Messiah, had a glorious end to it. God's move, his plan, was revealed to be not a heavenly scolding or a punishment for his people, but the promise to step amongst them, to arrive with the advance party of a Holy Spirit-filled Nazarite prophet, and to deliver us from the hands of our enemies, to achieve something mind-boggling, not just in a physical level, but a spiritual level. Such freedom, such intimacy, so that we may, even today, serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, and delighting before him. His plan was love, and it still is. I want to start by recognizing that the character of God we've seen in Zechariah's story is God as the father refusing to abandon his children and pushing aside sin, pain, even our expectations in order to be reunited to us, his beloved. My question to you this morning, my friends, is how do you want to start your Advent? This Advent, I want to start by pushing aside all of the twinkly distractions that would take me away from the joy of sitting with him. Why don't you stand and I'll pray for you. So Father, I want to praise you. I want to praise you like Zechariah did. I want to praise you for what you did in reaching out to us, in placing your hand of love onto us, even when we couldn't see what you were up to. I want to praise you, Jesus, for your presence amongst us, even this morning. We ask, would you come? More of you. More of you by your Holy Spirit, would you come?